Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight bet or parlay. That's $200 that you can use for all the upcoming basketball action, including the men's basketball tournament. If you bet at least $500 during the first and second round of the tournament, you can get a trip to the five-star rated Win Las Vegas. Offer subject to change, terms, and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where playthrough Winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 72 of the That's So Mets podcast. I'm your host, Connor Rogers. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Joe DeMeo. And as we sit here in this MLB lockout, the Mets are still very busy as they are on to round two of their managerial interviews. A lot of noise around Buck Showalter being the favorite. But as we sit here, Joe Espada is still in this picture for a second interview, and Matt Quattrero is still a finalist as well. So three finalists. The Mets are really going through this process. Episode 72, Wilfredo Tovar wore number 72 for eight days this season, and Carlos Torres wore it in 2015, a very memorable season. Joe, I might as well bring you in on, on that. What do you think of those for number 72? Wilfredo Tovar was actually a pretty decent prospect for the Mets back in the day. And then he, uh, I think, just left as a minor league free agent and it didn't really pan out. And then I didn't realize he was still in baseball until last winter. I was like, oh, the Mets, the Mets signed Wilfredo Tovar to a minor league deal. And I'm like, oh, didn't even know he was still hanging around. So uh, pretty funny and shows shows what the state of the 2021 Mets were. Like, if you go do one of those sporkle things, good luck picking out uh, every player that played for the Mets this year. Yeah, I had to sprinkle the number uh, tradition in the show just to show you, like, there's been times where, you know, we don't have anyone, or you got one guy, or there's, like, a coach that wore it. So many of the weird numbers that, quite frankly, might have never even been worn before in Mets history or are so brief... Uh, if they were worn, it felt like it was during this past season, which is hilarious. So Tovar, for the eight days in May, he was up with the Mets. Like I said, Carlos Torres, for some reason that I didn't even get to see, switched to 72 uh, for 2015. He did not wear that the previous year. He wore number in the 50s. So that was kind of strange. But anyway, let's get into it. You know, we're going to do a long mailbag today. Uh, it's a good time for that. When we don't have a guest, it's always going to be a good time for a long mailbag while we get through the lockout here. And uh, another reminder, we are going to be doing streams almost every single week and usually on Thursdays. Uh, Joe, can I say the guest this week? Is that okay? Yeah, go, go for it. Yeah. Why not? So this week's on the That's So Mets YouTube stream at th- on Thursday, 
uh, will be Doug Williams, formerly from SMY. He just announced he will be uh, leaving the network to go on to something else. But Doug has been, you know, all over the coverage of not just the Mets baseball in New York, but especially the Mets. So we're really excited to talk to him on the stream. As always, if you join the stream, you could send your questions. We fly them throughout the show. Uh, We'll throw them to Doug. Joe and I will get involved in the fun as well. So that's been really good. And as always, the podcast is rolling on. And I'm thinking, Joe, this will probably be the last podcast before the Mets have a manager. Am I right for thinking that? That's what it sounds like. I know last week I mentioned that maybe, you know, this week we'd be talking about one. Uh, But it sounds as if you may get a leak over the weekend. I wouldn't rule out that possibility. Uh, But it seems like that the Mets are conducting their first of their final three interviews today. Not sure who it's with. It's either with Buck Showalter or Matt Quichero because uh, Buster Olney from ESPN reported that Joe Espada's interview is on Thursday. Uh, and they'll be doing those three over the next four days. So on Friday, those interviews should conclude. Uh, and I would have the expectation that you might hear on Saturday or Sunday, hey, you know, source Mets plan to hire blank as manager press conference on Monday or something like that. And by all accounts, it sounds as if Buck Showalter is the leader in that race. And, you know, I think there's there's good reason for it. Uh, but Joe Espada, Matt Quichero are great candidates that if they don't beat out Buck for this job, are going to be managing in the major leagues either in Oakland, which is the other uh, position opening right now, or somewhere maybe next year. So both those guys are great candidates that are future and probably near future major league managers. Uh, it's just a matter of when you sit down with Steve Cohen, does Buck Showalter win him over? Yeah, I think, you know, that's going to be the conversation point to get this thing across the finish line. And I'm glad that they did make this a a legitimate process in a way. There's a lot of noise out there that Epler really likes Espada. Um, and obviously Billy does have a big voice in the room, but Cohen has the voice. And I think when you look at it from that perspective that they, they're bringing in three guys as finalists, it goes to show you that, you know, they do want different viewpoints. They want to feel out everything here. And, you know, while it feels like the majority, I would say 90% of the uh, public ranging from fans to media to former players and a lot of people in directly involved in baseball are going out of their way to speak for buck there's obviously a lot of redeeming qualities about Espada, about quattrero and for the mets here you know it's it's one of those ones where we we talk about we kind of minimize in a way the effect of a manager on this show uh, but this is one that you you obviously want to get it right because the expectations for this team are so significant with the moves they've made, the win-now money they've spent. And when you think of it like that, it kind of falls in line with a hire like Buck. Here's the thing. Buck makes a lot of sense for various reasons. Like I've said, I've kind of been a little open about this, that Joe Espada would be my preferred candidate. Um, But Buck is, he's the been there, done that guy. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I think there is a perception out there that he's against analytics and all that. What I think is you're more likely to see a Buck Walter who knows this is his final job and you'll see a different kind of person like Terry Collins. I remember when the Mets hired Terry Collins, it was like, this guy's a loose cannon. Players hate him. 
Uh, there's all He's this old. bad stuff. And then Terry ends up being, you know, a really good manager for the Mets. And frankly, every player seemed to love Terry. So I think you might see kind of a different Buck Showalter than you may have seen or heard about in years past. So I think he he fits here. And there's a lot of uh, positive things being said about him in the media, of course. Um, players like Adam Jones, who's one of the most respectable voices in the sport, uh, hyping up Showalter, I think was a really good thing to see. And interestingly enough, uh, back when Angels owner Artie Moreno uh, forced Billy Epler to fire Brad Osmus because he wanted Joe Madden. Uh, he wanted that big name manager. Uh, I read something from one of the LA papers that Billy Epler actually went to Moreno and said, can we hire Buck Showalter instead? And uh, Moreno said, no, he wanted Joe Madden and, and Joe Madden ended up the manager. So I think right now it looks like Epler's connections are obviously a spotter from back in his Yankee days. Uh, he he had an eye on hiring Buck Showalter in the in the very recent past. Uh, Quatrero is the one that seems like a little more out of left field for him. But I think it's an awesome three candidate list. Like you said, I think they went through a really good process. Uh, they interviewed all good candidates. I don't think there's anyone that was on their interview list that I looked at and was like, "Ew, why is that person there?" Like I I, I really didn't want Bob Garen. So yeah, yeah, I thought I so too. I wanted Bob Guerin, but uh, I didn't want Bob Guerin, but I at least appreciated the fact that, you know, he was worthy of being on the list. So it was a good list. That's been narrowed down to three good candidates. Uh, Buck might just be, I know we had that conversation with Ron Pope on, on the YouTube channel. You wonder, is Buck Showalter that adult in the room that, that, that this team could use? Um, I think he made great points talking about Scherzer and Marte and Canna and, and those guys, but you know, Buck will, Buck will demand the respect of that locker room, whereas a guy like Espada or Quichero, I don't know them personally, but my hunches they'll have to sort of earn the respect in that room. So that's kind of where the difference is. Sure. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I think, you know, they they really did try to have a layered process of don't just interview the same guys, right? Like when that's a big part of the hiring process that you want to look out for is you know, the voices in the room that are making those decisions. And in this case, particularly, it seems like it's Cohen and Epler um, leading the charge here with Cohen understandably being the biggest driving force. You know, people tend to obviously have biases or kind of zone in on on what they deem as their ideal candidate. And then way too often they look for the same person and find, you know, maybe four people that all have those qualities, but then in the end, leave out the things that you're missing because of your biases. And with this process, it, they really didn't do the, oh, we're only talking to experienced people or, oh, we're only talking to young guys that are just totally, uh, you know, really deep into an analytical mind, but haven't had been in a situational uh, you know, baseball way, right? They haven't had to make key decisions or they haven't had to make on the spot decisions or they really did this situ they really did this process of let's get a little bit of everything. And maybe what we're hearing about these guys is not necessarily who they are. You know, I think that's it. And I fall guilty of that too, not with football, but with baseball and other sports a lot where, you know, I'm, I'm just a fan. I'm an outsider. And I'm somebody that at the beginning of this process said Buck Showalter is, you know, too old. I think he won't want to follow what the analytic office gives him from upstairs and he'll like to go off the, 
you know, off of that path or it can lead to friction and or he won't connect with young players in today's game. And those are all the bad things that come to your mind right away. And I'm not saying those things can't happen, but it sounds like from the leaks going on that, you know, he's somebody that, yes, he is an old school baseball guy. Uh, but maybe he is somebody that is willing to adapt. And, and I think I'm willing to give him that chance. I want to make that clear. I was not going to be angry no matter who this hire was. Let me make that uh, abundantly clear. Um, you always fall into the trap of like, you know, falling into a favorite. And for you and I, Joe, that was clearly Espada. But out of all the conversations we've had on this show about either ors or choices or, or favorites, I think this is the one process for you and I uh, that we've we've been the most neutral on amongst anything. I don't have like a crazy strong side, like you're saying. Like I'd prefer Espada, but I think Buck's right up there with them. Quatrero is not really that far behind, but I think I lean uh, Espada and Buck over him. And the reality is when he, when you talk about analytics and Buck Showalter, like I don't need Buck Showalter to try to explain to me what weighted runs created plus means. <laughs> I just need him to take the information that the, the front office provides and implement it. Um, I just, I need him to, work with Billy Epler and Ben Zosmore and, and the staff. Like that's what I'm looking for from the manager. It doesn't need, he doesn't need to be an analytical whiz. He just can't be completely against it and say, I don't want your information. I'm managing with my gut. Like just take information in, utilize it the best you can. And, you know, I think Buck would, I think Buck's a, has a chance to be a good balance. Cause from what I'm hearing, it's seems like he's a little more open-minded than maybe we thought he would be. Uh, and part of that could be, you know, like I said up at the top, that he knows this is his last job. So if he gets this job, Buck won't be managing anywhere else again after this. So I think you'll see maybe a slightly different Buck than in his prime when he knew he was one of the better managers in baseball that won, you know, three manager of the years and really had that gravitas that he could say and do whatever he wants. I think you're going to see a guy that buys in and uh, that's ultimately all I want. So I don't care how old the manager is. I don't care about, you know, it's not old school versus new school. It's got to be a blend of the two. And hopefully Buck is able to do enough of a blend. And as we, as I said on Twitter, uh, talking about my preferred managerial candidate, the reality is if the Mets use 67 players again in 2022, it could be Buck Showalter, Joe Espada, Matt Quichero, Connor Rogers, Joe DeMeo, Ron Pope, Doug Williams. You name the person as manager, the team ain't winning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's just that's just kind of the reality. The players are obviously what truly drives winning and losing, because I, I think you mentioned it last week or two weeks ago, where it's not like football with scheming and, um, you know, there's limited as far as creativity that you can do. Uh, so it's just. You know, put the people in the right place to succeed, uh, keep people motivated and, you know, just be a good, you know, be a good in-game tactician. Excellent use of gravitas. I, I needed to highlight that. <laughs> uh, phenomenal. All right. So I said we had a pretty loaded mailbag today. And before we get into the full thing, there was a great question that tied right into this conversation uh, from Lev, who asked us to make a case for and against each of the remaining candidates. So, Joe, let's put a bow on the Buck Showalter conversation, and then we'll move on to Espada and Quattrero. Uh, 
take it away. Make a case for Buck. I know we've both kind of already done this, but let's, you know, we'll pick one point each and obviously pick something that goes against hiring him. Yeah. Case four is, you know, three-time manager of the year, uh, long-time manager, knows more about baseball than probably anyone else could forget. And just an all-around, you know, good guy that it seems players respect. Uh, I think he's he's earned that respect and I think he would he would come into the clubhouse and immediately have it and he wouldn't have to do anything there uh case against is if he was not open-minded and was coming in and saying I'm gonna manage my way you know stay away Billy Epler in front office just you make the team and I'll manage it kind of like Art Howe from Moneyball where it's like uh, I didn't make the team for you I'm just going to manage the team that you give me to the best of, of my ability. Uh, hopefully, you know, that's not the case, but that would be the argument is that he's closed-minded and not willing to adapt. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you there. I think for my case for him would be that you have chosen a route, right? When you are building a team, when you are new, and for Steve Cohen, this is really only year two. He's very new. Uh, for Billy Epler, this is year one. You have to choose a route that you're going to go of how you're... And sometimes it's not even your choice. Sometimes you are hired because of the route you're willing to go with from the owner. This team is not rebuilding. This team is attempting to win a World Series. And if that's the case, you're not going to hire the guy that has you know, maybe a very high ceiling, but also a ridiculously low floor you're going to hire the guy that you feel really good about his floor because you know you've already assembled the talent that can go win. Basically, what you just need him to do is, one, keep the clubhouse together and have the respect of the players and keep them playing hard, and two, be able to deal with the New York media, which is never the easiest thing to uh, to accomplish, and not make a circus of things. And... You know, not Louis Rojas, but other people involved in the Mets organization last year did make a circus of things at times. So that is my case for Buck is if he's hired, you know what you're going to not have to deal with. He is a legit baseball man, highly respected, been there, done that, has it all on the resume and can get this. I think he can get this team over the finish line, but you also know things aren't going to bottom out in just a horrific way uh, because he's just seen it all before. Now, a case against him, yeah, like you said, if and this is, I, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I truly have no idea, but you you would just have to think that you know you just hope he's not combatant against um, you know the way baseball is going because he is an older guy that has coached in uh, different eras of the game and. The fact is, this is a, you know, sports across the world are becoming more player-centric when once upon a time they were more about, you know, the logo and the coach. And, and now let's be real. There is a, uh, oh, the, wor- the sports world is focused on not just solely, but it's more focused on, you know, player brands and the individual. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that you have to be able to adapt to that and find the way to make the, the best situation of the team. So I think for Buck, um, hopefully that doesn't happen, but that would be the one thing where I'm like, okay, I, I just, I am keeping my eye on this. So let's move on. Now, Joe Espada, 
uh, Joe, what is your case for him? I know this is your favorite candidate. Yeah. And what is your case against him? So my case for him, he's worked for two of the most prolific franchises in the sport uh, with the Yankees and the Astros. He's learned under the likes of Joe Girardi, A.J. Hinch, and now Dusty Baker. And what I find most interesting about Espada is with Dusty Baker, uh, he actually did a lot more than your average bench coach. Uh, typically, your bench coach is like passing along information and just kind of feeding to the manager. Um, Espada was fully re uh, responsible for a lot of the game planning, um, the strategy that they were going to have. He was the one that really collaborated with the front office. So he kind of was the he did most of what a manager does. And Dusty really handled the locker room and and the players and the personalities. And I think he was, you know, that safety net hire after obviously the sign stealing scandal that they wanted someone, you know, experienced, respected, someone that could kind of change the narrative a bit for the Astros. And Espada did most of what a manager does. So I feel he's he is equipped to do the job right now. Um, he's well liked. So to me, Espada is a good combination of he's been around the game. And I think people often just discount experience within baseball uh, unless they're a manager. So, I mean, he's he's going to be capable to manage a team and he's going to get the chance, whether it's here or somewhere else soon. So I think Espada is a great candidate. I, I would be excited if they hired him because I'd look at him as, you know, maybe they found their guy that can be the manager for years going forward. Um, the cons against him, you know, some people care about managerial experience. I'm one that doesn't, uh, he doesn't have any really at all. So that's, that's a, a ding against him. You know, he, he wasn't, uh, a part of the whole report on the sign stealing, but he was there during it. So that's certainly a question that you have to ask. Uh, but other than that, you know, it's really just, Hey, he hasn't managed at the big league level yet. That's pretty much his major concern and at the end of the day every manager was a first-time manager at some point in time so uh you obviously have some one and done guys but you also have guys that you know get their first job and then never look back okay so my case for espada is i think he might be the perfect balance between all three candidates in a sense that he does have a lot of experience. He's been in Major League Baseball since 2010. Like you said, Joe, uh, no actual you know experience being the guy, but has been a coach in baseball for over a, a decade now, I believe it's added up to. And it also includes the fact that he's been on a staff that's dealt with elite star talent uh, with the Puerto Rican national team in two separate stints of it as well. He's done it in 2013 and 2017. Obviously, 2017, uh, some guys that are also on the New York Mets right now, Francisco Lindor, Seth Lugo, and I believe Edwin Diaz as well. So for Espada, I think he's a nice balance of a younger forward-thinking guy that has also been in the majors for a while and also has that international coaching experience where you know maybe the spotlight it can be very significant in terms of uh, being around just managing star talent. I think that's something that people don't talk about enough. It is It can be very difficult to do, and I think he has those relationships there. My cons against him, this is the hardest one because this is my favorite candidate, um, but like you said, 
Joe, the fact that he has not been the guy somewhere, my take on that situation is if it starts out bad, you know the hounds will just be out for him and go, can't believe the Mets passed on Buck Showalter for an unproven guy, you know, this and that. And how are you going to respond to that kind of early adversity in New York where, understandably, the owner and and a lot of the media have labeled you as this win now, you know, all or nothing kind of team. That's, you know, Buck will be able to handle the gut punches throughout the year. Like somebody's going to get hurt. And everybody's going to be like, oh, well, what do you do now? Buck's going to know how to handle that. Or something dumb is going to happen. Or the team's going to lose 10 games in a row. And Buck is just going to, I think, know how to keep the boat afloat. And I'm not saying a spot of won't. I can't say confidently, though, that he will. And just throw my hands up and go, I know it. Because I don't. So, like I said, I think he's the most in-the-middle balance of the three guys. But as always, does have his question marks as well. Final one, Joe, Matt Quattrero. Um, this is, you know, maybe the most unknown of the three. What do you like and, and what do you have questions about? I would imagine a little similar to Espada's concerns, at least for me. Yeah, he he's definitely the most unknown, but he's another guy that comes from that Tampa Bay Rays model. And you see Tampa Bay Rays coaches, front office personnel, everyone go elsewhere and have great success. Uh, he he's learning from Kevin Cash, who's a, a fantastic manager, despite the whole uh, pulling Blake Snell out of a no hitter thing. <laughs> uh, but Quitrero, very analytically driven. So that's going to play a heavy hand into where the Mets are headed. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about it before that this analytics department is going to be above 30 people by opening day. So it's it's getting very large. It's going to be a huge driving force in the Mets' decision-making going forward. So Quetrero would really speak that language, and I think that's you know a, a benefit to look ahead to. Uh, his job previous to Tampa, he was the assistant hitting coach for the Indians, which are now the Guardians, So, but they were the Indians, so uh, I'm allowed to say it, I think. Uh, but he was there for three years and worked directly with Francisco Lindor. So I don't know the level of their relationship, but some kind of relationship exists there. So you have a relationship with your biggest star player um, who obviously had a rough go of it in, in his first go in New York, his first year of the law of the long deal. So, you know, Quattrero is a guy that maybe could come in and kind of get Lindor back to what was working in Cleveland. So those are kind of the pros there and the cons, like you said, similar to Espada, not much experience. Um, I hate to say, you know, we don't know a lot about him as a con, but because that's on us that we don't know anything about him. But uh, that's another thing that, like, I don't know a ton other than, than he's analytically driven and where he's from. And he's, an, he's a local guy, which I guess can go in the pros that a lot of people like to root for people from New York. Um, so he's local in that sense. But to me, he's, like you said, a spot of feels kind of in the middle of Buck and Quattrero and Quattrero's kind of all the way on one end of the spectrum and Showalter's on, on the other. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what his candidacy will be this week, but he's definitely, you know, the, I guess the more out of left field of the three finalists. I think so as well. And I think, you know, for me, Yes, experience, even more of a legitimate question in a sense that, like I said, I don't care about being the guy experience as much. I care about just overall, you know, he's been in the majors since 2014 while Espada broke in in 2010, and we know Buck's history. 
Um, what I do like from Quattrero, just a little personal note, he was an assistant for Albany's baseball team for four years. I'm an Albany alum, so there's a little bias there. He is uh, a New York guy, Quattrero. So I think it would be you know, somewhat of a little bit of a homecoming. I think that kind of stuff is played out. But I, the most important thing that I like is that he's been involved with the Rays organization for the last couple of years. And I, I think in terms of baseball, the Rays are just top class in how they handle just about everything during the season, quite honestly. They are almost an injury-proof team. It seems like they find ways when a big name goes down to just keep things going. They get the most out of everybody. They maximize talent. Um, they And most importantly, they maximize floors, right? Guys that you wouldn't think are everyday big league players or even big league players at all somehow produce for the Rays. So... That's the big one for me, um, but I don't think he's going to be the guy. I just think that it, it's the most out of left field. It's the one that, you know, is a mystery, and maybe that will be shocked. Who knows? Um, but overall, I, I, I think Quattro, it's nice that he's getting a second round, and he might even get the Oakland job. We'll see. But I, I, this would be the biggest surprise of the three to me. Any final thoughts on the – managerial finalists here joe before we get into the rest of the today's mailbag and thank you to lev for that that great question yeah i'm my final thoughts is i i would uh bet heavily that it's buck show walter so mm, i think yeah. i think i think we'll be talking in the coming days about new mets manager buck show walter yeah i think so as well all right let's get right into it uh the first one is from jim in east brunswick he said, I was 12 when the Mets won in 86. I remember the attitude and swagger more than anything else. Do you see anyone on this team or anyone who is out there who may be on this team soon that has that swagger, minus the criminality? Um, okay, so I I was not alive. Uh, I was born in 91, but I have consumed a lot of 86 Mets content, whether it's the documentaries or the books um, or just my dad's stories for days. And yes, that is always the thing that stands out to me is they were freaking, I think it's, they had such an attitude and swagger that it overlooks how freakishly talented that team was. That's something that does not get talked about. Like when you look at the 86 Mets, so, and this is a crappy thing to say, but it's really shocking they didn't win more than one World Series and that they needed like a miracle way to win that World Series with how incredible that roster was from top to bottom, from the pitching staff. They actually, in the end, and we don't talk about this a lot because it's crappy, but they that roster did underachieve. Yes, they won a World Series, but I'm telling you, from everything that like I've read and looked into and watched, like that team could have been a dynasty. Anyways, getting away from that sad topic, I think the signing of Scherzer is the closest thing in terms of killer instinct. Like I want and Degrom as well. Degrom has the killer instinct as well. I want the ball. I want to be on the mound. I want to embarrass you while you're at the plate, and I want to finish this freaking game. And and then if we're in a series, I, you know, I know Scherzer had the dead arm thing. I'm kind of tired of people talking about it because the dude has put up in huge moments his career. But for me, that one-two dynamic of DeGrom and Scherzer that can control an entire series is the parallel I draw to the 86 team in terms of what not only what they had at the top of the rotation, but the style of player. 
And that's exactly it. I, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's the Scherzer Degrom dynamic. Uh, I do have one question for you. You said documentary. Is that how you say that word, or did you misspeak? I hope you say documentary, like I say platoon, and that's kind of your word that you say wrong. I don't really ever say the full word. I just say doc. Oh, like <laughs> so on the podcast, okay. I might yeah. have like really really uh exaggerated that word yeah but like, like does anybody say that when like oh i watched the 86 doc oh, i say documentary i'd say like i watched the 86 documentary not documentary but i don't I, now i don't know now you have me overthinking it. it's like your platoon situation <laughs> exactly where you were like you were like you were like couldn't believe that was out the, like yeah. that was not normal <laughs> yeah now i'm wondering do i say documentary or yeah, do I just do that in my podcast? Narrating? I don't know, but I'm scared. I, I'd say I'd say that's something to think about. But uh, it's, I'm, oh, I'm it's my brain is spinning right yeah. now. It it is uh it's certainly documentary, or I guess I think it's platoon. So maybe I'm not one to talk. Um, but yeah, back back to the overall important point. Totally attitude swagger. It's Max Scherzer. It's Jacob Degrom. That's your attitude. That's your swagger. Um, at least if you want to correlate it to kind of the badassery, if that's a word, um, Bias of the nineteen eighty six team. Yeah, if that's a word, if it's not a word, that'd be a, that'd be a great word. <laughs> so, um, okay, and I think that I'm trying to draw some more parallels to that team. I mean, Pete Alonso, maybe a little bit, where like he's kind of like that big moment guy. Yep. Uh, I think I think he kind of fits, but he's you know. The thing is, like, when I think of the 86 team, like you, I was not born. I'm a couple years older than you, but I wasn't born yet. Like, I'm thinking of, like, guys just, like, punching each other and <laughs> fighting yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and, do, and do everything that they did. And the Mets don't really have people like that. I mean, Lindor seemed like he wanted to fight last year, but, like, I don't think that's him. Um, but Alonzo kind of has that. He has that swagger just in a, in a different way than maybe the 86 guys, but he definitely has some swag. I think also the construction of the lineup, while is not not there yet, I do like that this lineup now has speed at the top that that '86 team had. Like yeah. you, you got to realize with Mookie and Lenny, those guys can get on base and really make things happen, and the Mets are going to really rely on a guy like Marte to do that, a guy like Canna to do that. Obviously, Nimmo, who's not really that stolen base threat, but gets on base and makes things happen at the top of the order. Um, and, and so we'll see where it goes. But I like the question from Jim. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you've got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Start hiring right now with $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. 
And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and condition apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It goes without saying that we are all missing travel right now. But you know what else we're missing? Getting more. With Priceline, you can save up to 60% on your favorite hotels, and you can also get exclusive deals on car rentals, flights, and more. And when you save more, you can do more. More, wow, this view is incredible. More, mmm, another round of room service, please. More, yes, I'm extending my vacation. Sorry, boss, if you're listening, just ignore that last part. Priceline knows that every trip is a big deal. So when you're ready to book your next one, check out Priceline.com for the easiest way to get more wow, mmm, and yes, just to name a few. Make sure to download the Priceline app for even more savings. All right, the next one is from an insane Mets fan. When the lockout ends, what are the highest priority needs for the Mets to make? How would you rank the priority needs? I mean, Joe, I think number one we have to agree on it's got to be another starting pitcher, correct? Yeah, starting pitcher is one. Uh, lefty Old reliever. Two. I would say lefty reliever, number two. Uh, number three, another bat, uh, I guess. And number four is just overall depth. I want this team to be deeper and deeper. Uh, they have to be prepared to know that they're going to have to, they're going to need 50 players or so at least to get through a season so you want as many people in the organization as possible that you're prepared you know if necessary for them to play in a major league game uh so to me it's they need a, a legitimate starter it doesn't necessarily have to be a, another frontline guy uh someone reliable that you know is going to take the ball every fifth day and you know m- maybe it is a number four type starter i don't think that would be a, a bad thing to add someone like that but if it's someone that you can say with some level of confidence based on their history that they're going to take the ball every fifth day. I think that's the most valuable thing that the Mets could add um, a- after the lockout ends. Uh, they need a lefty reliever. They don't have one. And obviously, if you can be opportunistic with other bullpen additions, because who knows if this lockout ends two weeks before spring training, there's going to be some quality hitters, pitchers, everything that gets squeezed. And maybe that's where you can really be opportunistic and and attack that market Um, on the bat side of things. You know, everyone's going to talk about Chris Bryant and and maybe the Mets do pursue Chris Bryant. Uh, I just don't, I just don't think they're going to be looking into a long-term deal. Uh, I think if Bryant were to say, Hey, I'm willing to go three years with an opt out after the first or second year, I could see the Mets wanting to play, but his market's probably going to merit the six, seven year deal that he's earned. So can't, I, I don't see that happening, um, but I, I hope that they are evaluating everything and just ready to you know, strike for a good one-year deal on people because you never know whose market will fall apart. I think for me, an underrated need is a potential budget DH, right? Like a guy that 
you know, you're not going out there and giving, I, I don't know, like Schwarber's probably going to get a good deal and good for him. I'm not not saying Schwarber, but like what is a, you know, say you're, you're, you're thinking Pete's going to play first base every day and Pete's been very vocal that he wants to play first base every day. And, you know, there is a world where maybe Dom plays first and Pete DHs, maybe they rotate DHs, maybe Cano gets in there as a DH. But for me, you know, not spinning 8 million different scenarios, I look at this team, I've been very vocal that I think they don't have enough pop. I think a a DH with some pop, a streaky pop, can you can get on a good budget. I don't know if that's Solaire. I don't know if that's Eddie Rosario. I don't know, but I, I, I'm intrigued by that being a quiet need right now. Nelson Cruz. I don't care about budget. He's Great. Si- he's signing a one-year deal. I don't give a crap about a budget. <laughs> he's yes, fo- he's yeah. 41 years old. He mashes dingers. Bring on Nelson Cruz. I, I should clarify, I also include one-year deals in the budget thing. Like yeah. it, I think one-year deals, if it's $20 million, what what the hell ever, the Mets are blowing through the tax right now. It does not matter. Um, just no term. Okay, so from Patrick Chamberlain, our next question. He said, if you haven't seen, Patrick Chamberlain has an excellent new avatar on his Twitter. If you had to take three current Mets players and put them on your favorite NFL team, who would you choose and what position would you have them each play? Bonus points for not putting pitchers at quarterback. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take anyone from the pitching staff. I'll start with the first one, and then I'll ping-pong your way, Joe. I'm going to put Pete Alonso at fullback for the New York Jets. Okay. Fullback. A uh, bit bit of a dying position, but... Not in uh, Shanahan's offensive schemes. That's that's true. So, uh, Pete Alonso's your Kyle Juszczyk, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. You know where this is going. So, I'm going to go, actually, with uh, Starling Marte. Back at free safety for my Dallas Cowboys. Uh, free safety. He's got the range. Got, he's got some range in the outfield. Um, the Cowboys have had a hole at free safety for as long as I can remember. Um, I just remember praying for Earl Thomas for years and years, and it never happening. Um, then and, Jamal Adams and, was was connected was connected yeah, to them. Thank God that didn't happen. Uh, yes. Good, good job, Jets. But uh, yeah, my my first one. I, I'm going with. Uh, Starling Marte to play free safety for the Cowboys. I like that one. Okay, I this is where it gets hard, man. Like baseball players uh, do not project well to the NFL. Let's just call it like we see it here. Oh boy, this is not pretty right now. Um, <laughs> I mean, seriously, how could you put any of these guys on the field right now? And it, and I root for the Jets, who you could say, man, they need a lot right now. I, I mean, maybe James McCann at linebacker, since the Jets gave up 800 rushing yards every single week, and McCann's a pretty big guy. He's six three. He's listed six three two twenty. I'm willing to say McCann is at least two thirty. He's a big dude, so and we'll get some linebacker help. The problem with McCann is he's definitely a two down player. Like there's no like you can. He's off at best. He's off. He's off the field on every pass down. There's no question about it. He's not us. Yes. He's not covering uh, Jamison Crowder out of the slot. I don't think with much success. Uh, I'm <laughs> I'm gonna go with Francisco Lindor to play corner opposite of Trayvon Diggs. Uh, and you know Anthony Brown's been hit or miss. Jordan Lewis is a bit hit and miss. Uh, Bossman Fat hasn't gotten going yet. But Lindor's got that feet, that foot quickness. 
uh, good change of direction skills. He can he has speed, so he can you know run run with receivers downfield. Uh, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like he he would be fine as corner, and he's got that swag and confidence that I could see him you know wearing all like the fresh gear at corner and looking cooler than maybe he plays. But yeah, I think Lindor could maybe handle a cornerback job. I like your strategy of take the best athlete and find a place for him to play. That's the that's the uh, Micah that's Parsons rule. Yes, that's a great <laughs> scouting mind right there. And Lindor is undoubtedly an incredible athlete and probably could have excelled in, in basically any sport. All right, my last one, I don't even need him to play a position on the field. I just need him on the sidelines and at practice to wake the New York Jets up from this long, long slumber. Max Scherzer. No, Patrick Chamberlain, I'm not putting a pitcher at quarterback. I am just making him the 53rd man. He could maybe <laughs> be the long snapper. But the fact that they sleepwalk through so many different games, uh, I think Mad Max would MF a lot of people, uh, drop plenty of F-bombs, and if he if that guy can't wake you up, then there's no hope. So, And my last one, I'm going to go, not a specific position on you know the 11 on 11, but Every team has their special teams guy. That's just, he's a special teams player. The Cowboys have CJ Goodwin. I'm sure the Jets, I'm sure you could tell me who the Jets guy is, that he's technically a corner or technically a receiver, but Justin he doesn't. Justin Hardy, yep. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but he he just never plays those positions. Um, yep. And you need a a special, special skill set to just be a special teams person. I feel like there's got to be something going on upstairs. And if there's someone with something going on upstairs on the Mets, it's Jeff McNeil. I could just set, just send him on punt and kick returns all day and just let him, let, let him be a loose cannon. That's where I think that's where he'll fit. Maybe the Mets should do that. It would unleash some of his rage and calm things down <laughs> going into the year. Here's my, my bonus one. I mean, this week we saw four onside kicks recovered, right? This and we there was three all year coming into the season. In one weekend, we had four onside kicks recovery. How about hands team Joe Luis Guillorme out there uh, to recover onside kicks? How do you like that one? That's a good one because I mean he could catch a flying bat. I guarantee he could catch a flying ball. I think yes. I think that would work perfectly. All right, all right. Next one from the mailbag from Yosef who asked us, how come Carlos Beltran was not even considered? Uh, I'm assuming in the Mets managerial. Uh, process. My guess is just the lack of baseball coaching experience. So there wasn't, you know, any, there was no one on this list that doesn't have a long history of coaching in baseball. I don't think the Mets wanted to, I think the Beltron hire at the time, like while we were excited about it, we were excited about it because Beltron was a former Met. There was nothing that was like, we know this guy can manage. It was just like, Hey, this is awesome. I like Beltron in 2006. So it's cool. He gets to be manager now. Um, I think they realize that it's a win now period. And Beltron would have, like, we're talking about learning curves for Joe Espada, who's coached in the major leagues for over a decade. Uh, imagine the learning curve for a guy like Beltron that's done it nowhere at any level. And I just think they wanted to, you know, get, get ready for 2022. Uh, Steve Cohen's spending upwards of $300 million on this roster in uh, 2022. I don't think he wants a manager that doesn't really know what to do. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to put it, honestly. I, I do think there might have been a tiny, tiny part of it that they didn't want to have to revisit the whole 
you know, is it time to forgive him? Is it? I, I think right. there's a part of Steve Cohen that really wants to wash away any Wilpon. And now I know he brought in Sandy Alderson, but he's known Sandy for a long time, Cohen. It was not like he didn't know him and made that hire. He he knew him pretty well when he brought him back to the Mets organization. I do think there's a lot of Cohen that says, you know, I, I don't want this to be the Wilpon Mets in any way. And Beltran might have been a great manager. He might have been a terrible manager. We don't know. But we do know that the Wilpons love those splashy kind of moves that are cost effective in a sense, but also, you know, can can generate some buzz for a team that didn't spend any money. Um, so I think for Beltron, it's it's what Joe said, number one, number two, number three, and number four. But then maybe that number five on the list, there's a smidge that says, you know what? We don't really need to go back down this road, to be honest with you. So, all right, the next one. From Steve Miller, who always sends us good stuff. Hypothetically, of course, if you could pluck a current team's manager to take over for the Mets, who would it be? I, I think for me, Joe, I-, I I think it would be Alex Cora. Where are you on this? Uh, I just uh, you stole my answer. I was going to say I think the, the that's best why I manager jumped at the I, top of that one. I th- I think the best manager in baseball is Alex Cora. So if I could have had Alex Cora manage the Mets, I think that would be it. Uh, you know, I think I think he is just where it's at, to be honest. I think he's he's the best that's doing it right now. Uh, he took a Red Sox team that was expected to be not good and uh, brought them deep into the playoffs. So I think he's fantastic at what he does. And uh, th- I, I think he's the no brainer. And I don't know why I'm blanking. I had a backup. I don't know how I'm blanking uh, Melvin. Bob Melvin, Doug Melvin. Yeah, Bob Melvin. Yeah, Bob Melvin would be my number two. And I know that the Mets did try to get him and it didn't work out. But uh, he's with San Diego now. Uh, I think he's one of the better managers in baseball as well with the success that he's had with Oakland. So that's kind of my backup. But Cora and Melvin, probably to me, my two favorite managers in baseball. Yeah, it's yeah, I'm with you there. And it's things they couldn't get Melvin because we we heard how close, uh, you know, they potentially were. And yeah, with Cora, I mean, he's kind of the dude that, you know, does it all. He he has it all. He has tons of experience in the big leagues, um, you know, long big league career, was on championship teams, and, you know, born in Puerto Rico, uh, like I said, long major league career in the United States. It really just, and obviously an insanely intelligent guy, first and foremost. So uh, for Cora, yeah, he's, he's the dude for a reason, right? And by the way, that's an example of what I was talking about before of every great manager is a first-time manager at some point. And Cora was a yeah. first-time manager, really successful for the Red Sox, had the suspension because of the whole sign-stealing thing. And the Red Sox were like, we ain't letting this guy go anywhere else. So serve your suspension and you'll come right back because you're a fantastic manager. So yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone's got to get their first job and Core is a guy that seems like he got his first job, and I think it's going to be his job for a long time. Yeah, it looks that way. So, all right, last question of today's mailbag. This one's from MK, who asked us, who's your favorite non-baseball athlete of all time? Ooh. Or not, or could be current, either okay. one. Well, my favorite, so obviously I'm going to talk Dak Prescott, uh, quarterback of my Dallas Cowboys. He's... You know, to me, I think the model of what a franchise type quarterback is talent on the field, everything he does off the field, Dak's a stud. But my true, true favorite athlete of all time is Roger Federer. Um, I played tennis. Uh, 
dating back to high school and up until still play tennis, just kind of more for fun now than not so much within, uh, within competition. But Roger's been my dude uh, since high school. Like to me, he's the GOAT. Um, I think Novak is going to pass him in records and everything like that. But uh, there was nothing like watching Roger. Roger always reminded me of like the Carlos Beltrons and the guys like that, that just, it looked like he wasn't even trying out there. It's just everything's so effortless. And I'm sure you can name some football players that are, are very similar, you know, more of them than I do, but where it's just like, it doesn't even look like he's trying out there and he's just decimating like the number two player in the world when he's number one, just like wiping the floor with them. Like it, he was for the longest time there, he was at such a different level than everyone else. And just uh, someone that I looked up to when I was playing tennis when I was young. I think it's it's remarkable when you're an international name, even if like for, pe- for people that don't follow that sport, right? Like I didn't follow tennis. And of course, you know who Federer was. That's what makes it so remarkable. Uh, you're just in a league of your own when you're on that level. For me, my favorite non-baseball athlete of all time, it's Darrell Rebus. Um, I think that you know, I, I watched him when he was at Pitt when I was a kid because my dad's a big college football fan and, and loved Rebus. And then the Jets trade up and get him, and he goes on to be uh, – he's the, the greatest player to ever wear a New York Jets uniform. I, you know, obviously, Joe Namath, everybody loves him. But in terms of the most talented player to ever wear a New York Jets uniform, uh, it's Darrell Rebus. I think he's the greatest man cover corner of all time. And uh, actually somebody that – Later on, well after his Jets career, well after his NFL career, I got to interview for Stick to Football, and they always say, like, you know, don't meet, like, your heroes, right? And uh, he was awesome to talk to. Couldn't have been uh, more awesome to have a conversation with. So I think that that's one that went full circle, right? Like, watched him in college, uh, watched him when I was young, like, very young, and he's, he's awesome. So that, for me, is my favorite non-baseball one. I like that you brought up Dak because – what I always find incredible with Dak is, and I'm sure there's Giants fans listening to the show that don't agree, but I think Dak has accomplished one of the hardest things in all of sports, and that is he has made the Dallas Cowboys likable from a national perspective. Like, I, like people, you know this, Joe, you're a Cowboys fan. People hate on the Cowboys and Cowboys fans because there's 8 million of you. You're a national franchise. You're America's team. It's like the Lakers in the NBA you know, like the Yankees in baseball. Um, And I find the Cowboys to be, you know, and obviously I'm a a fan of an AFC team. So maybe it's, this is part of it, but I find the Cowboys to be very likable. And that to me starts with Dak. Dak is, um, you know, he was at the senior bowl and, and I go to the senior bowl every year. He is somebody that can light up a room, works as hard as anybody in any sport. It is a absolute dog. He'll get on guys when he needs to. And he knows when he shouldn't. And he's, he's you know, everybody says he's just an awesome guy off the field. And he's dealt with a lot of adversity in his life. If you if you know his story with his mom, uh, his story with his brother. And he does a lot for that community. So I, I like that you brought up Dak. I think he is the perfect answer to this question for current athletes right now. I'm trying to think of any other ones. I mean, that's for me, it's, it's Revis. And it's, it's not one I have to think about very long, to be honest with you. And it sounds yeah. like you're like that with Federer. Yeah, yeah. Federer is my go-to. Like, if you watch the YouTube, I have a Federer and a Michael Scott behind me. So, uh, yeah, Federer is that guy that just, you know, when I was really little, uh, I, I played baseball. I, play, I played all those sports. But 
when I was like in high school, I was fully, fully focused on tennis and, you know, Federer. I watched every tournament, the small tournaments, the grand slams, anything that I could get, I watched. And uh, I basically didn't miss Federer whenever I got the chance. And I was just, I tried to look like him. I, I would force my mom to buy me like the, the Roger Federer headbands that he would wear by Nike and stuff like that. So I tried to like emulate his look. Uh, that's I, when you know you love yeah, an athlete but i could never emulate his damn game i'll tell you yeah there's stuff, <laughs> stuff out there all right well i threw in a bonus question that has to do because you brought up uh playing tennis in high school and being a federer fan i think we we would have funny answers to this one johnny sent us this he said what's your favorite moment from your own experience playing sports when you were younger and we said we're we're gonna do some questions that are non-Mets or maybe even non-baseball related at times because we got to lock out, folks, and we got to get through this damn thing. And Joe and I are gonna give you an hour podcast every single Tuesday evening, Wednesday morning, and and we're not gonna settle for less. So I'll tell a funny story for this one, and I have some that are that are not funny that I really do love, but I don't want, I don't want to get all like sappy and emotional and and think of my glory days. So my funniest one is. The only left-handed goal I ever scored in lacrosse in outdoor, not indoor, because in indoor the the field's smaller and it's easier to score, and um, and obviously in lacrosse you you do play ambidextrous, although some people are better than others at uh, shooting with their offhand. Was the day after my senior ball or senior prom, whatever you want to call it, I was miserably hungover. And we were we were playing a absolute shit team that I knew that I would never go into a game like hungover like that unless I knew it was like a walk in the park. And my coach knew uh, we were hungover. So he left us all out there for like we were I'm Joe. We were winning 18 to two. And he was just like, yeah. So I I was just tired and I had the ball at at the top and I just made a move left and shot at horrible, slow left-handed bounce shot and it trickled past the terrible goalie and I just was sweating and about to puke to the sideline and I was I was laughing my ass off I was like I cannot believe that terrible hungover left-handed shot went in that's fantastic that's hilarious nothing like a good hangover sports story yeah and a Uh, sport where you just run back and forth the entire time Dude, I would I probably would have found a way to not show up. I don't I don't know. I would I would not have made it. But um for me, I got I got a couple. I have one that's kind of funny and one that's more like, hey, good job, Joe. You did you did something. Um the first one is my one and only over the fence home run. It was in Little League. Uh I was I was a little guy, uh, not to be confused with skinny that one of our <laughs> one one of our great listeners had mentioned to me at a tailgate. I've always been skinny, but I used to be super short. Like when when I walked into high school, I was 4'10, 4'11, like 85 pounds of nothing. Just just a little nothing guy. Uh but in little league, I remember my mom brought me to Kmart. I needed to get a bat. And at this time my mom was not gonna buy me. I eventually, when I played like uh pony ball and stuff like that, I eventually got an Omaha gold, which if you play baseball, you know the Omaha. Oh, gold. yeah. Um, but at the time, she wasn't spending that kind of money for me to play Little League. And there was a bat at Kmart that was a Mark McGuire branded bat that was Mac 25 on it. And I remember thinking, Mom, I need the Mark McGuire bat. And she's like, all right, whatever. It was probably like 25 or 30 bucks. <laughs> and literally, I have a game. Like we go from Kmart to the game. My first at bat swing at the first pitch, hit a home run, pull, pull a ball left field. I go, oh, my God, 
I think I'm becoming Mark <laughs> McGuire. I'm like, I'm a little kid. Uh, never, never really uh, did it again or got anywhere close, but just one swing that it just, it worked out. Um, and then to my tennis, uh, I, like I said, I played it year round. I went to Vermont for camps during the summer. So when school wasn't going on, I used to go to Vermont for camps. Uh, and my senior year, I made it to the quarterfinals of States and got my ass kicked by the number one seed, 6061. Uh, he served probably 125 miles an hour. And oh God, dude. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I'm almost certain that in the second set, he was just like, I'll give this kid a game just to be nice. He just put like three balls into the net that are just like easy forehands. And I think he was just like, I'll just give him a game. It's not a, it's not a battle, but I did make it to the quarters of state. So that was a, that was fun. I didn't expect to win in the first round. I was just like, Oh, I won in the first round. Well, that's sweet. Didn't expect that. Oh, second round. Okay. So I made, I made it, made it pretty far my senior year. I mean, that's tremendous. And isn't it incredible when you go see like, you know, everybody likes to be on the couch and, like, you know, be the, oh, like, you know, I could do that. Or, like, these guys suck on TV when pro sports. Like, I always think of the the closest I have been to playing against, like, you know, elite, elite athletes. Not at, like, a, a, a camps, yes, of course, and all that kind of stuff. But one time we uh, we had a trip to Ohio to play, I believe it was St. Ignatius. And St. Ignatius is, like, they, they just put guys in d1 football all the time and we played them in lacrosse uh for and that was a long trip i grew up in new york and that bus ride was like 10 hours and we i mean for, we were a good team and we lost like eight to three eight to two and you look around and you're just like this is a different level of athlete that like you can't believe exists and then you realize there's many tiers above them oh it's yeah and that's what reminds me of what your tennis story where you're just yeah. like i mean that's like 120 mile plus hour serve is just how do you see the ball? Yeah. I mean, you just stick your racket out and, yeah, and, pray. and, and, and just hope, <laughs> and hope for the best. But like, you know, I, I don't know what uh, I think his name was Simon something. I don't know what Simon ended up doing, but uh, he was the number one seed in the state of Connecticut. And I don't think he played pro tennis. So uh, it just shows, like you said, like we will sit here and we say, you know, so and so stinks at baseball or whatever. And obvi <laughs> obviously that's quite hyperbolic. But uh, the reality is, you know, everyone that gets to that level like you said is just it's just another tier like I don't have any stories of playing against professional anything like I know I watched uh Mike Olt who was ended up being a first or second round pick uh in the MLB draft he went to UConn uh but I saw him because he played for the rival uh so he's my age but he played for the rival high school and when I had the chance, I would go watch a baseball game. I remember Mike Olt coming to town and he uh, hit like a 435 foot bomb. And I was just like, Jesus. And uh, yeah, that's like the closest I have to like a professional athlete. And he, I don't, I don't know if he ever, I think he had like a cup of coffee in the bigs kind of thing, but like a guy like that, that's just like, holy hell, this guy's awesome. He wasn't even good enough to like, stick in the major leagues and that's not an insult to him it's just a compliment to the players that spend five six seven eight ten plus years in the bigs um so do, do you have any experiences like i don't know i don't even know what sports you played besides lacrosse like did you have any experience with anyone that ended up like being anything in sports that made it pro yeah 
Ooh, let me think about that. I always try to think back because I played against a lot of kids in lacrosse that were uh, going D1, and I had two current, like two teammates that went D1, but pro- I don't think anybody that I played directly against went pro. Um, there was a kid from my high school that was in the eighth grade when I was a senior um, that ended up playing for starting for Yale's championship team, uh, Joey Sessa, who was probably the best player to come out of our high school. But, God, I'm trying to think. I don't know. Maybe at camps and stuff, but, yeah. I mean, in other sports, no. I mean, it's just it's just like the the closest I'll say that I've been around. So Stephanie Dolson, uh, I went to preschool with her and, and high school with her and all that stuff, and she – won like a million championships for UConn women's basketball team and then in the Olympics and plays in the WNBA and was like a top, I believe a top 10. She was the sixth overall pick in her WNBA draft. And like, obviously I didn't play basketball against her, but I was around her enough and watched enough of her in person where it's like, this is an unstoppable athlete. Like she is one of the best, you know, probably one of the best women's basketball players in the world. And it's, yeah, it's, it's unlike anything else. Like it's you just it's unlike anything you've seen where you're just like, okay, there are only like they're in the one percent, right? That's how you look at it in the world. And uh it's it feels like a different sport, honestly, is what it is. It feels like, wow, this is a totally different sport. What what's a more unstoppable force? The Yukon women's basketball team or the Alabama football team? Ooh, wow. Um I would say UConn women because they just were unchallenged sometimes, right? Yeah. Like where where Alabama, you're right, Alabama, the way they reload in that playing and, and, field. Yeah, is and the SEC, they just basically never lose almost ever. <laughs> uh, but it's quite yeah. quite a, a comparison there. Just like two programs like UConn women, like, uh, you know, I'm from Connecticut. We don't have professional sports teams here. Uh, so we're all about our UConn, pretty much. That's all we have here. And, uh, you know, the men's men's team looking good. They're they're ranked this year. So the men's team's looking not too bad with Hurley at the helm. Uh, but the women's team is just, you know, crazy how what they won, like 100 and something games in a row or whatever. It's just it's absurd how long they've dominated uh, at the college basketball level. They probably just get literally their pick of the litter of the recruits. Yeah, why would you want to go, you know, anywhere else at that point? And I think that, um, you know, that's that's a thought with Alabama at times is a lot of guys would rather go play with the best talent and the way they push themselves to become better and ready for the pros is on another level. But uh, with that being said, Joe, episode <laughs> 72, the Wilfredo Tovar episode. Closing thoughts. I loved it, man. I mean, I, I mentioned on Twitter today, you know, we're in a lockout here. Uh, it's it's going to be, you know, tough on the baseball content because nothing's really going to be happening once they make this managerial hire. Uh, we'll obviously talk baseball every single week. That's undeniable. But when we ask for questions, hit us with some some of these interesting ones, these unique ones that get us off the rails. Telling stories. Yeah. I mean, man, we're we're building a community here. Like, uh, obviously, we get a ton of, ton of questions every week. We get all you guys, all you guys and girls that subscribe and rate and review and do all that stuff that we really appreciate and uh, the YouTube, all that stuff. 
Like we're trying to build a, a bit of a community here. So let's get to know each other a little bit. So feel free to send us anything. I'm a I'm a bit of an open book. So talk. I'll talk about anything. Like I just, we got into a conversation on debating UConn women's basketball and Alabama football. Like if that's not content for a Mets podcast, I don't know what is. It's spot. I know we're, we went off the rails today, told some funny stories, told some serious ones, um, a lot of good times. And, you know, if we miss your question or you'd rather have it in the live format and post it as we do the YouTube show, then then tune in on Thursday. We, we pretty much aim to go at 430 on Thursdays. Uh, please subscribe to the That's Some Mets YouTube. We're hoping to really grow that. And the more we grow it, the more capabilities we'll have for that YouTube channel. I, I want a thousand a thousand yes. subscribers. I think we're at almost 700 now. So uh, tell your hey, friends, tell, tell your kids, tell your sons, daughters fathers mothers grandmothers grandfathers just tell them just take their phone so go ahead take their phone go to youtube search that so mets click subscribe and then slide their phone back to them like that's perfectly fine go ahead and do that but yeah no i i really do appreciate everyone's support like you know we're trying to like we tried to get this podcast off the ground out of nowhere and i think it's been you know pretty successful i i've very much enjoyed this we get obviously great support from everyone that listens. And now we're just trying to do the same thing with YouTube. So let's continue to, you know, grow that so Mets and make it, let's, you know, make it a community. Like I, I love, like we have our routine questions. Like we have our Steve Millers, our Patrick Chamberlain's, our insane Met fans. We have, we have our, our people. So let's, uh, let's continue to grow this community. It's, it's something that I really, really look forward to doing all the time. Well said, my friend. And maybe one day all those people on Twitter can, uh, can, can uh, bully Steve Cohen into coming on one of the live streams or something like that. The, the power we're gaining. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll catch you next week. I'm Amira Rose Davis, host of the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. My white coaches just said, you may not get the scores that you deserve because you're black. It's the story of a decades-long struggle of black gymnasts trying to find and amplify their voices. I can't be the next Simone Biles. I can't be the next Dominique Dawes. I can only be the next version of myself. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts.